Before we listen to the reading from the gospel, I just want to share with you the meaning of the word gospel. The English word gospel comes from two English words, God's spell. And it summarizes for us what the gospel is about, where the spell of God comes down on earth and takes hold of his people. And we are invited in listening to the gospel to pray that God's spell may fall on us, that our lives would be lived under the spell of God. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. 
You may be seated. I want to add my uh, word of welcome to you to, uh, for you returning from your Thanksgiving break. This campus is a, a very quiet place when you're not here. In fact, some would say it's dead. It, it's actually shocking to come on the campus without Westmont students. And uh, it just reminds me again of, of how we feel on the faculty and staff about you. Uh, we're really uh, privileged and proud to be an institution with students like you, and we're very thankful to the Lord to, to be able to be here. And we pray and we work uh, to make this uh, the remainder of this uh, semester, and I know it's a, a very a pressured period from here until Christmas. Uh, we work and we pray that this will be a, a really good experience uh, for each one of you. Before uh, saying a, a word of introduction for our speaker, I want to um, ask us to spend a, a moment in prayer. Um, as you may know, this day has been designated as World AIDS Day. And some students called that to my attention and asked that we uh, recognize that, and I'm glad to do that. I'd like to extend it to include uh, others who are, are dying and and uh, have contracted uh, terminal illnesses from other uh, kinds of disease. Uh, it just happens in the last several years. I've, I've uh, known several people who have uh, contracted illnesses of this kind and, and have a, a little sense, at least, of what it means uh, for them. And so I'd like us to uh, bow for a, a brief word of prayer as we remember people around the world, certainly those who have contracted AIDS, which is growing now at a rate that is almost twice what we thought it was up till a few weeks ago, and, uh, but also to include those who have other uh, terminal kinds of, of illness. Uh, let's join in prayer. Father, we, we feel we... Uh, and we, we know that we take health uh, for granted ourselves until uh, something happens that uh, brings it uh, into our reality. And we know that we, we cannot possibly imagine uh, what that is uh, without the experience. And yet, Lord, we, we know that there are millions of people uh, today who are... Uh, having to deal with the reality of a terminal illness. And in many, many cases, in growing numbers, uh, this is the result of AIDS. We pray, Lord, for not only those who, who have this disease, uh, but for others who have other diseases that have comparable effect. And we also pray for the causes, the, the situations, the decisions, the the values that allow some of this to, to occur. And we pray that there will be your presence um, in those areas as well as in the hearts and lives of those who are dealing with this tragedy. Lord, help us to know how we can be of comfort, how we can be of help, how we can reach out and express love that goes well beyond our love, love that comes from you to those who are dealing with this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to hear again from our uh, provost, uh, Dr. Stan Gady.
and by now he needs no introduction in terms of his considerable academic achievement as well as his leadership role here on our campus. I simply want to say that he's become a good friend of mine and to say how grateful to the Lord uh, we are for his presence on our leadership team at Westmont. Particularly thankful for his willingness, for his desire to share with us in chapel on a regular basis. Uh, this is not um, common for people in his position nationally. Each time I've heard him, and I always hear him on tape, uh, driving to Los Angeles or someplace if I'm not able to be here on campus the day of his talk, I've been blessed by his sensitivity, by his insight. He is a person of integrity and wisdom with a strong and authentic uh, personal faith in Christ. Uh, we're privileged to hear from him again, Dr. Stan Gady. Good morning. Thank you very much for those words. It is a privilege to be here this morning. Um, see if I can get this right. That'll have to do. Well, students' gift this morning, not students' choice. Um, why would I depart from tradition like this? Well, my thinking is that we have turned a corner here. The month of December is upon us. You've only got a few weeks of classes left, which means that right now you're someplace between deep guilt and high anxiety. <laughs> this is not the time for me to lay on more stress and more expectations. In fact, with Christmas just around the corner, this is the time for giving, right? And that is my intention this morning. Indeed, I want to give you two gifts, and they come in the form of two stories. Both of these stories are about my dad, as it turns out. So in a way, these are two Christmas gifts to you from my father by way of his son. And they are for your listening pleasure. Now, you need to know, for starters, that my father was a California farmer. And that means he probably doesn't fit your stereotype of the average American horticulturalist. In fact, he moved into farming from the grocery business, not because he had a deep love of the land, not because he loved to get up early in the morning and watch the plants reach for the sky, not for any reason at all except to make a living. It was for him a business, pure and simple. And it was the business end of the operation that occupied most of his time and his thinking. Some people say that farmers are, ro are romantics and that that's what sustains them through all the lean years. That may be the case for some, but it bears no relationship at all to my father. If he ever had a romantic thought about farming, it was the best kept secret west of the Pecos. I remember driving by our farm one morning and commenting on the deep green beauty of the young plants. He looked absolutely stunned by the idea and probably spent the rest of the day trying to figure out how his son had arrived at such a conclusion. If he hadn't prospered at farming, he would have happily sold the farm and done something more profitable. Where the farm was concerned, he didn't have a sentimental bone in his body. None of this should be construed to suggest that my father was a crass businessman without feelings or emotions, however. He was nothing of the sort. Things were be t to be manipulated, but people were not. And for people, he could shed a tear at the drop of a hat. 
Even at age 55, if you mentioned the name of his favorite grade school teacher, his eyes grew misty. If you talked about other people behind their backs, even if they were your enemies, he would rebuke you immediately, especially me. And if another farmer was in financial difficulty and was selling his farm as a result, my dad's heart would ache for him. But if it was dad's farm that needed peddling, sell the thing and get on with life. This approach to things made him a bit frustrating to deal with at times, by the way. One of my most vivid memories is of my dad purchasing a new car. He would walk into the showroom together, he and I, I, of course, having researched the matter in detail, and I would tell Dad precisely the kind of car we should buy, including color, style, and a hundred other things. Dad would listen, ask a few embarrassing questions, like why do we need the larger engine when the small one gets better gas mileage and costs less? And then finally, Dad would turn his attention to the salesman, who was more than likely following us all over the showroom during this time, unsuccessfully trying to get my dad's attention. The salesman would then proceed to ask us one of those salesy questions like, well now, what kind of car are you interested in? I would bite every time and immediately launch into a description of my dream car. The salesman would smile and surely think, gotcha. My dad, however, wouldn't say a word. He would just sit there, politely nod his head once or twice, and let the salesman ramble, which, of course, the fellow would do. At first, the salesman would think that he was really making progress since my dad was listening and he was controlling the conversation. But eventually, it would dawn on him that he wasn't receiving any feedback, and that's when he would start getting more than a tad anxious. Well, Mr. Gady, how would you like to drive that car home this afternoon? No response. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. This is a brand-new 1961 model and with a sticker price of $3,200. But I'm going to let you have it for $29.95. What do you say? Great, I would say under my breath, smiling so broadly my cheeks would practically split. But then I would peek over at my father, and he would be just sitting there, his face expressionless, and his eyes revealing little more than the fact that he was alive. Well, Mr. Gady, <clears throat> it may be possible to shave just a little more off that price, the salesman continued, trying to do something to compensate for all the silence. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'll talk to my boss and see if he can get it for you for a flat 2900 Would you be willing to take it for that? Again, no response. A powerful silence ensued, the salesman playing with his pencil and my dad uttering not a sound. Salesmen, I have learned, can stand about 2.2 seconds of such serenity, after which they began drawing Mickey Mouse ears on their legal pad, rolling around in their seat and generally questioning the meaning of life. If it were a normal conversation, of course, the silence wouldn't be a problem. One would simply tell Mr. Gady to wake up or else bid him a fond farewell. But this was not a normal conversation. The salesman thinks he is on the verge of selling a car. That means he can't break off the relationship, nor can he be rude. Rather, he must somehow keep the conversation going, even though Mr. Gady isn't going anywhere with the conversation. So about this time, the poor fellow would excuse himself, pretending that he had to talk the deal over with his boss, but probably heading straight to the bathroom. Dad, that's a great deal, I would chime in the minute he was gone. Aren't you interested? My father would smile. It is a nice car, isn't it? What do you suppose the rest of the family would think about it? 
oh, they love it, Dad, I would say, after which I would carry on another extended monologue about all the advantages of the vehicle and how well it would fit into our garage, not to mention our lives. Dad would listen attentively and smile, but he wouldn't commit himself in the least. Finally, the salesman would return. Well, now, tell you what I'm going to do. I've just been talking it over with Mr. Bimbo himself, and he said we really need to move that car. He's willing to let you have it for rock bottom now, 28, <clears throat> 28.50. Unbelievable, I thought to myself. They're practically giving the car away. Even Dad won't be able to resist it. Um, I was wondering, Dad would finally say, does the car have air conditioning? Well, well, no. No, it doesn't, Mr. Gady, but, picking up steam here, we can sure install that one for you. Let me see. Yes, we can add air conditioning for $299. Would you like that, Mr. Gady? Hmm, it's getting a little high, I'm afraid. And then Dad would look over at the car and lapse back into his silent mode. Look, let me see what I can do for you, Mr. Gady. And off the salesman would go for another therapy session with Mr. Bimbo. <laughs> in no time, he was back with the good news. Mr. Gady, you caught Mr. Bimbo in a great mood today. He's willing to let you have the air conditioner for $150. That means you can have the car with the air conditioner for $3,000. And Mr. Gady, he looked at Dad with the eyes of a bloodhound. That's really as low as I can go. Okay, then. Thank you for your time, Dad would say cordially, stretching out his hand in front of him and pulling himself out of his chair. My son tells me that this is a nice car you've got here, and I really appreciate your showing it to us. And then an astonished salesman would watch as Mr. Gady and son would walk out of the showroom. Now, there are two things that you need to keep in mind about this whole episode. One, my dad's behavior was not simply a ploy to manipulate the salesman into giving him a better deal. And second, the whole scene, which I had the opportunity to observe on innumerable occasions, used to drive me absolutely bananas. Since the second point is more obvious, let me begin with the first. Most people would assume, and I am confident the salesman believed, that my dad's behavior was designed to unnerve him and thereby produce a lower cost vehicle. Nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly, my dad was looking for the best price possible, but he was totally incapable of such an, art, an artful manipulation of events. The basis for dad's behavior was not economics, but worldview. He simply had no need whatsoever for the car. As a result, when he walked out of the showroom, the car and all its putative advantages would simply vanish from his mind, and he would be off and running doing other things. Sometimes the salesman would contact him a day or two later and offer him a better deal. And sometimes the offer would interest Dad enough that he would reconsider the matter or perhaps even purchase a car. But not necessarily. The bottom line for Dad was always, is the purchase necessary and is it a good use of our monies? No deal could dissuade him if the answer to those questions was no. The consequence of this approach was that, even though Dad was a modestly successful farmer, some of our things, including cars, were pretty ripe before we got rid of them. Dad lived with a tractor longer than any farmer that I knew. He simply saw no reason to spend huge sums of money on a new tractor when the old one still ran or could be fixed. He didn't farm for show. On the other hand, when a new piece of equipment would pay for itself, 
like a harvester, for example, he was willing to invest staggering amounts of art, uh, of, of money, in state-of-the-art machinery. The bottom line, again, was stewardship, not self-aggrandizement. And that's what used to drive me crazy. Because, you see, I was not detached from things. I liked things. I liked the way they looked. I liked the way they moved. I especially liked the way they moved me. And cars moved me in more ways than one. Thus, the fact that we were still plugging along in our gold 55 Chrysler was an embarrassment. And the fact that Dad was turning his back on a great deal and a great car was maddening and disappointing, and in moments of deep aesthetic rapture, even fundamentally wrong. Indeed, sitting there in the showroom, watching the salesman squirm and listening to my dad's silence, I could become downright moral about the whole thing. What right did my dad have putting the salesman through that ordeal anyway? Or me, for that matter. The salesman was just trying to make a living, for goodness sake. Why put the man in Bellevue for the sake of a few hundred dollars? And me, I was just trying to look out for the welfare of the family. Was it safe to let us drive around in a car with 120,000 miles on it? Didn't we deserve something more, with a little more class? Shouldn't Dad be driving a car more befitting his station in life? Wouldn't I look good sitting in the passenger seat and in a few years behind the steering wheel? Wasn't the purchase really the right thing to do? The good, prudent, proper, wonderful thing to do? What escaped my attention at the time, however, is that the salesman's strain and mine were not induced by my father, but by a clash of two different worldviews. We, that is the salesman and I, cared about the car. My father did not. We had a personal interest in seeing a transaction take place. My father was profoundly disinterested. We thought the car would improve our place in life. My father thought it would get us from one place to another, just like our 55 Chrysler. Two different perspectives on a car, two different angles on life. Why is it that we invest so much personal significance in things, anyway, especially when we know that tomorrow they will be old or tarnished or stolen? Automobiles, for example, are convenient forms of transportation, and their design and function sometimes deserve genuine admiration. But as sources of prestige and self-respect, they are surely deficient. Our 55 Chrysler made that clear. In the showroom, that car seemed like the cat's pajamas, an entree into the world of high times and high living. But by 1961, just six years later, it looked like an anemic hippo with fins, Big Bird just before he cashes in the chips. So why are, they, why are these things so important to us? I believe it's not merely that we think too highly of things. We think too lowly of ourselves. We don't have enough self-respect to keep things in proper perspective. But my father had the good sense to realize that his worth was not dependent on the things over which he had been given dominion, but on the one who had given him dominion over things. And though I couldn't appreciate that fact in my youth, it seems pretty valuable to me today. And so as my first gift to you this morning, I want to offer you my dad's good sense about things and his understanding that his self-worth depended not upon what he had, but on who it was that had him. The other gift I want to give you this morning is not unrelated to the first, but in order to understand it, I'm going to have to tell you one more story. When I was growing up, 
we always went to church on Sunday night. We did this not because there was anything particularly exciting going on in church on Sunday night, but because there wasn't anything particularly exciting going on any place on Sunday night. Anyway, I remember the family driving home from church one evening and seeing a man in a trench coat walking on the side of the road, weaving on and off the pavement. My dad slowed down as we approached the figure, and while everyone in the car gawked, Dad tried to keep as much distance as possible between the man and our Chrysler. He did that for the man's safety, of course, not the Chrysler's. But I remember thinking as we were going by and I tried to catch a glimpse of the shadowy figure's face, that the distance was comforting to me as well. The guy looked scary. When we finally arrived home, Dad stopped the car just short of the garage and allowed everyone to jump out. I thought that was odd since he usually went right into the garage. But Dad had his own reasons and he didn't always feel compelled to share them. And at that point, I didn't feel particularly compelled to discover what they were. The trench coat figured had, had sent a chill down my spine and I was anxious to get into the house and warm up. Besides, Bonanza, the all-time great Sunday night TV program, was already half over. I sat in the middle of the front seat, however, with mom to my right, so my quick exit had to wait. Even for a 10-year-old, crawling over your mother right after church for Bonanza's sake didn't seem quite right. I sat there patiently then, waiting for mom to collect her purse, loose bulletins, hairpins, a Bible, church memorabilia, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Finally, the moment came. Mom slipped out the door, and I, having timed my escape with precision, was less than a hair's breadth behind her. Just as my right foot hit the pavement, however, I felt a hand on my shoulder. Stan, came my father's voice, I want you to stay in the car with me. I'm going to go back and see if that man needs help. I quickly looked around the car to see if he had another son named Stan. Uh, <clears throat> you mean me, Dad? I finally said, still desperately hoping for some other explanation. Yep, he quipped as he put the car back in gear, closed the door. Oh, Dad, I said, leaving the door ajar and my foot firmly planted on the driveway. You know, I, I'm really tired, and I've got a lot of homework to do, and my, need, my room needs cleaning, and that guy was probably just a jogger anyway, don't you think? It's a new fad, trench coat jogging in the middle of the night. Dad looked at me without enthusiasm. It was one of the lower points in my prepubescent career, presenting me with the classic Catch-22. If I had put my foot down and said, Dad, I don't want to go, he would have said, fine, driven away without comment, and I would have felt like squat. On the other hand, if I went with my father, I had every reason to believe that I was going to die. <laughs> I chose death. <laughs> in large part because it seemed like the easier thing to do. We proceeded to back out of the driveway, therefore, and headed down the road. As the engine picked up speed, I suddenly felt compelled to pray without ceasing. Lord, make him disappear. Lord, make him disappear. Make him disappear. A few minutes into that, however, and I started to question its value. The Lord didn't have a habit of making people disappear, I knew, and I began to doubt that he would even want to. I decided to change strategies. Heal him, Lord, I cried in my mind. Right there in the side of the road, heal him of his infirmities, heal him of his iniquities, take care of his insecurities too, Lord. Do it all now, right now. Heal him, Lord. 
The Chrysler and I were in high gear when the man's figure appeared again in the side of the road, precisely at the spot we had last encountered him. Rats, I thought to myself. I knew the disappearing prayer was a bad one. Maybe he's been healed. Maybe he's been miraculously transformed. Not a chance. The figure was just as hunched over and pathetic looking as before. My prayers had not worked, not even the healer. Why is that, I thought to myself, becoming deeply philosophical for the first time in my life. Why doesn't God answer the coward's prayer once in a while? We have needs too, you know. Things were rapidly going downhill when my father pulled the car to the side of the road just a few yards from the rubbery figure. He put the transmission in park, but left the engine running. As his hand reached for the door, he paused for just a moment, seemingly studying the figure who was now standing directly in front of us. Stan, he carefully said, I want you to stay in the car. Right, Dad, I responded. Anything you say, let me hold down the old fort for you, Dad. The car's in good hands. Don't worry about a thing. As my father eased out of the car and walked over to the man, I tried to watch what he was doing, but found it difficult from my vantage point under the dashboard of the car. He was talking with the fellow, I could tell that, but about what I couldn't imagine. I pulled my head a little higher, only to discover that, oh no, Dad was bringing him over to the car. I tried to crawl further under the dashboard, but got caught in the wires. Suddenly, the back door swung open, and the terrifying creature lurched into the rear seat of the car. The door closed, and then we were alone. As my dad walked to the driver's side, I tried to untangle myself from the wires. I could already see the morning's headlines. Son strangled under dashboard while father tries to be good Samaritan. Family apologizes. <laughs> it was not an auspicious departure. Struggling to save face now, I managed to climb back into the front seat before my father returned to the car. The move was the first constructive thing that I'd done all evening, and it gave me a bolt of courage. I began to think that I might be able to salvage my dignity after all. As Dad slipped into his seat, therefore, I screwed up my courage for the ultimate act of bravery. Hi, I said happily as I popped up for a quick, quick peek to the back seat of the car. How's it going? It was a dumb question. And under normal circumstances, I would have spent a substantial amount of time simply contemplating how dumb it was. But something interrupted my thinking process. Something or someone that abruptly made my self-absorption seem pathetic and my worries ludicrous. You see, the shadowy figure, the trench coat stranger, the great and evil creature, was nothing more than a shivering, inebriated, and completely disoriented old woman. Nothing more and nothing less. As embarrassment replaced fear, I finally began making a contribution to the evening, finding a blanket in the trunk, wrapping it around the old woman's legs, asking her how she felt, and generally acting as if she were a needy human being. It was a new approach for me. And as we took her home that evening and placed her in her bed, I couldn't help noticing that I had gone a kind of, a kind of liberation as a result. I had been freed from fear, for one thing, but also freed from myself. Freed, in other words, to give away some of what the Lord had freely given to me. And for the first time in a long time, I felt good. 
It was a freedom my dad had known all along, of course, for unlike his son, he had seen a human being from the start, not a stereotype, and he had responded in kind. Just as he did not make things more than things, he did not make people less than people. He didn't reduce them to drunks or tramps or freaks or enemies, nor did he elevate them to saints. People were people to dad, worthy because they were created in the image of God, pitiful because they did battle with sin and lost. Most of all, people were there to be served because of Jesus, who served us, because of Jesus, who did battle with sin and won. No hair-splitting theology, no questions asked about who is my neighbor and who is not. Just a faith. In fact, it has told you from day one that things are people and people are things, that you use people to get ahead, to bring you pleasure, to show off your power, and you serve things, working to acquire them, living to enjoy them, loving to adore them. And I must admit the world's gifts come wrapped in very pretty packages. But it turns out that holding the gifts of the world is not as easy as it looks. They are heavy for one thing, a great burden, in fact, and they never seem to satisfy. No matter how many people you use, you always need to use a few more. No matter how many things you have, you always seem to need at least one more. My father's gifts, on the other hand, aren't much to look at. Refusing to measure your worth by things, helping a stranger on the side of the road, you'll get no applause from the world for that. But my father's gifts will not weigh you down, nor will they ever disappoint you. And more important than any of that is you receive these gifts and then, in turn, give them to others. You will have the satisfaction of knowing that you, too, are about your father's business. And let me tell you, my friends, that is a satisfaction that you can live with for eternity. Merry, Merry Christmas. You are dismissed.